This is GM Word of the Week, and I'm Fiddleback. Drow. We here at the GM Word of the Week love a good long con, and when we say long con, we don't mean that in the actual sense of a perfected and complicated confidence game intended to gain someone's trust as part of a scheme to steal their money. We mean that in the narrative sense. In that sense, a long con is when an author, writer, or a pair of podcasters tease their audiences with some small detail and then delay paying off on that detail. The goal is to tantalize the audience, but also maintain the element of surprise. Here's a thing. I bet you want to know more about the thing. Look at the thing. Okay, now forget about the thing. Oh wait, here's that thing again. Do you want it now? Nope, not yet. Forget it. And so on. We love that sort of thing, and that's why, despite many other misgivings over the race and what they have become, we have to admit a grudging respect for the drow. Yeah, remember the drow we never talked about two weeks ago? Now it's time to talk about the thing. We told you we love a long con. Few races are more divisive than the drow amongst fans of D&D. The drow, in case you are unaware, are dark elves. Unlike the lithe, magical woodfolk of the world of D&D's forests, the dark elves live deep underground in a realm called the Underdark. They are thralls of Loth, the demon queen of spiders, and they are viciously evil. They despise their surface-dwelling kin, and in fact all surface-dwellers, and they live to enslave and conquer. Physically, drow resemble elves, but with inky black skin, or sometimes purple skin, pale white hair, eyes of red, yellow, or violet. Actually, we should mention the purple skin thing. Because drow skin color is another one of those things that brooks a lot of what we shall politely call debate amongst gaming fans. There are those who argue that all drow have obsidian skin and no other color. And there are those who argue a range of colors from black to gray to blue to purple. And that is because the canonical skin color of the drow has changed over time because of, believe it or not, printing issues. Originally, all drow had jet black skin. In fact, that uniformity was expressly noted. But then, suddenly, drow started popping up with dark green, dark brown, and dark purple skin. Especially dark purple skin. The reason? Well, jet black skin sounds like a really great idea in text and it works for black and white line art. But when color artwork started to appear in various D&D products, the inky black skin caused some problems. For one thing, while it worked okay on thick covers, for page art, the ink saturation was just too high. There was a lot of problem with ink bleeding through pages. For another, a lot of details like muscles and facial features got lost in the inky blackness, except in very glossy cover art. By the third edition, the skin color variation was official across all D&D products. But 
with improvements in printing and art quality. In 4th and 5th edition, the canonical descriptions have reverted to the uniform obsidian black. But we digress. As we said, the drow are a very divisive race. You either love them or you hate them. And that love or hate turns almost entirely on the popularity of a set of D&D novels set in the fictional world of the Forgotten Realms. We mentioned in our Ogma episode that after Ed Greenwood created the Forgotten Realms and it became a published D&D setting, the publisher, TSR, sought an author to write a novel set in their new world to drum up some enthusiasm. They had an unsolicited manuscript from an up-and-coming author named Robert Anthony Salvatore that Mary Kirkhoff, the managing director of TSR's fiction department, thought showed some promise. After a few phone calls, Salvatore agreed to do a rewrite of his manuscript. He read some material about the Moonshay Islands, a small region in the massive Forgotten Realms, and rewrote a story to take place there. Kirkhoff was disappointed that Salvatore had chosen to set his novel in the one place in all of the Forgotten Realms that they had already developed some stories about. When she consulted Salvatore, she discovered that Salvatore thought that the Moonshay Islands represented the entirety of the Forgotten Realms. So Kirkhoff sent him a map of the gigantic land of Faerun, and Salvatore saw just how much space he had to work with. In the end, he chose a northern region called Icewind Dale and wrote his first novel, set in the Forgotten Realms, The Crystal Shard. The Crystal Shard was a hit, and of its three primary characters, Wolfgar the Barbarian, Bruinor Battlehammer the Dwarf, and the heroic elf Dritz Duerden, Dritz proved to be the breakout character of the series. Dritz was a dark elf from the city of Menzo Baranzin, but he had cast off the evil ways of his kin and rebelled against his noble house. For that, he had been exiled to the surface. He was a clever, cunning survivalist and a skilled warrior. He had a strong moral compass, but he was also a tormented anti-hero. And he had a magical panther companion named Gwynhavar. The heroic loner outcast with a dark past was a very popular archetype in 1988 when the book was released. Salvatore wrote many, many more stories about the Forgotten Realms, and many of them starred Dritzd. And, after Ed Greenwood, no name is more synonymous with the Forgotten Realms than R.A. Salvatore. Unfortunately, Dritzd's popularity also led to many, many attempts to imitate the character. In the gaming community, the proliferation of copycat characters led many gamers to joke about how the entire race of drow now consisted of heroic rebels who cast off the shackles of their evil kin and there weren't any evil drow left in the world. And because we here at the GM Word of the Week remember that time, we have to admit we're pretty tired of the drow. Both the evil drow and the brooding anti-hero rebel drow. But that was in 1988. Back in 1977, no one had ever heard of the drow, because they hadn't been invented yet. But even after they were invented, no one would know anything about them for a year. 
Because as we mentioned in the last drow episode, and the only real piece of information we gave about the drow, the drow were actually one of D&D creator E. Gary Gygax's most successful long cons. Following its release in 1974, Dungeons & Dragons' popularity grew quickly, and fans clamored for more. In 1977, Gary Gygax and TSR delivered in two big ways. First, they revised and greatly expanded the original rules under the name Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, and second, they decided to start publishing dedicated adventure modules. See, Dungeons & Dragons isn't really a game by itself, it's a set of rules for playing games. The players would create their own games using the tools the game provided and share those. Kind of like Super Mario Maker. Until 1978, your only options for playing D&D were to make your own games or get a hold of one someone was sharing. And then TSR decided they would start publishing their own adventure modules that people could buy. Gygax was still doing most of the design of the game by himself at that point. And as he worked on the new and much more complex rule set for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons, he would relax in the evenings by creating adventure modules based on the rules and development. And his adventures began to run together in the form of a multi-part epic. They told the story of various tribes of giants uniting and making war against humanity. But to tie the stories together, he wanted a good villain. A master planner who was manipulating events behind the scenes. Someone who orchestrated the giant unification. And he also wanted someone that would allow him to introduce one of his grandest ideas. A massive world-sized complex of caves and dungeons known as the Underdark. In 1977, the rules for Advanced Dungeons & Dragons were released. And in the game's Encyclopedia of Monsters, the Monster Manual, Gygax inserted a single hint of things to come. In the entry about elves, he mentioned that there were legends of evil elves living underground, but those legends are just rumor and hearsay. Done and done. In 1978, TSR published the first of their published adventure modules, G1, Steading of the Giant Chief. It was short, just eight pages, in which the heroes confronted a tribe of hill giants that had been attacking human towns but it was a big deal, and TSR made sure of it. They marketed the adventure heavily and released it first at the Origins Gaming Convention in 1978, wherein they also held a tournament. 275 players competed to complete steading of the giant chief over two days. But what was important was, at the end of the adventure, the heroes learned that someone, some mysterious villain, had incited the giants to attack and that the story was to be continued. Two more adventures followed in the so-called G-series. G2, the glacial rift of the frost giant Jarl, and G3, Hall of the Fire Giant King. The second further teased the mysterious villain, and the third finally named the villains and let the PCs have their first encounter with the evil drow, the Dark Elves. And while, in the end, the giant's unification was ended, the drow retreated into their underground domain. Three more adventures followed, the fourth and fifth adventures TSR published. 
and those saw the heroes chasing the drow into the strange underworld known as the Underdark in Descent into the Depths of the Earth and the Shrine of the Kuatoa, and ultimately confronting the drow in Vault of the Drow. But Gygax's long con wasn't quite finished. Because the D series ended by inviting the heroes to travel to even more alien territory. To leave the Underdark and journey to the extra-dimensional underworld to confront the drow's demonic overlord, Lolth, the demon queen of spiders. And thus, the long con was finally paid off in 1980. Sort of. See, Gygax didn't write Q1 Queen of the Demon Web Pits, and he had intended an entirely different villain. In fact, a very careful reading of the G&D series of modules implies that the drow worshipped another great D&D villain, the Elder Elemental God. But Gygax had become distracted by other projects, and David C. Sutherland III had written the module. Gygax even tried to keep it from being published, but he was overridden by his partner and friend Brian Bloom. And this may have been the first sign of some ugly divisions between Gygax and his partners that would eventually get Gygax ousted from the company he built and lead to TSR's eventual bankruptcy but we digress. Whenever we discuss any figure from Dungeons & Dragons, we invariably ask the question, how did they come up with this? And that question usually leads us to interesting bits of mythology and folklore or excerpts from great works of science fiction and fantasy. So how did Gary Gygax come up with the drow? What inspired his dark elves? Well, in Gygax's own words, nothing. Or almost nothing. Most features of the drow in D&D were initially invented to fill their role as the villains of Gygax's story. But there was one interesting thing that he did pull out of mythology and folklore. He had spotted the name in an encyclopedia of folklore. Drow. Or rather, Trow. Trows are elements of Orkney folklore. In fact, they are one of the very few well-known elements of this obscure branch of European folklore. Orkney folklore originates in the Orkney Islands, an archipelago off the northern coast of Scotland. As far back as 8,000 years ago, the islands were home to the Neolithic Orcadians, and tombs and monuments have been found on the island that are at least 5,000 years old. Later, the islands became allied with the Pictish Kingdoms, a confederacy of Iron Age kingdoms that ruled Scotland and Northern England. But importantly for the character of the islands, the Orkney Islands avoided sharing the same fate as the Picts. We should note that Pict is a Roman name. It comes from the same root as the word picture, and it means painted people. The Romans first encountered them during their protracted conquest of the British Isles that began in 43 CE. The conquest of Great Britain is an interesting part of Roman history because it came nearly 30 years after Rome's expansion across Europe was pretty much done. See, by about 10 CE, Rome pretty much ruled all of Europe. At least, it ruled all of Europe that it was ever going to rule. 
After three Roman legions were lost trying to conquer the Teutoburg Forest in north-central Europe, the lands of the Germanic tribes, August Caesar concluded that the empire was pretty much as big as it could get. Further conquest would just overextend the empire. It was time, Augustus said, to start securing their borders. But there followed a political strife and corruption. After the death of the so-called Mad Emperor Caligula in 41 CE, his obscure cousin Claudius unexpectedly ended up on the imperial throne. Claudius was practically unknown, and what was known didn't endear him to the Roman Senate. He had written a series of historical books that were highly critical of Imperial Rome and more supportive of its Republic days. Beyond that, he was recognized as clumsy, unattractive, unhealthy, coarse, unrefined, and rude. In short, from the day he landed on the imperial throne, he enjoyed almost no support from the rest of the government. But Claudius was smart, and he knew he needed some prestige. He needed to endear himself to the people of Rome, and he knew that real Roman power rested in the military. And so, he decided it was time to start expanding those borders again. The Roman military began annexing new land in northern Africa, and those annexations were highly profitable. And Claudius made sure that soldiers were well paid for their efforts. But he needed something bigger. And so he decided that the Roman army would cross the channel and finally conquer the British Isles. This was purely a bid for prestige. Britain was not possessed of any particularly valuable natural resources, and the conquest would not be easy. Britain was home to numerous tribes who were more than capable in battle, including the Gaels and the Welsh, as well as the Picts. Claudius led the army through several initial victories in southern Britain, and despite some losses, the conquest was profitable enough to win him the support of the Roman military, which also began to slowly push out the Roman borders in Central Europe and Northern Africa. The annexations were modest, nothing on the scale of previous Roman conquests, but they were profitable. Claudius was, in many ways, an enlightened ruler. He empowered local governors to rule with less Roman oversight and offered various routes to Roman citizenship, both of which took the sting off of Roman occupation in some places and endeared him to foreign-born Romans. He ensured the military was well paid, which won him the support of soldiers. He increased tolerance for various religious traditions, and he tried to foster peace between the Jews of Rome and their various enemies. But we digress. What of the Picts and the Orkney Islands? Well, the Pictish kingdoms proved to be just too much for the Romans, and they halted their expansion into northern Britain and Scotland after many years of stalemate and several rebel uprisings. But fearing the destabilizing influence of the strange Druidic traditions of the northern tribes and their military might, the Romans constructed a wall, known as Hadrian's Wall, to divide the island of Great Britain between the Roman Imperial South and the North, where the others lived. Yes, a wall to prevent a strange group of others with their mysterious ancient gods and fairies and magic. And if that sounds a little like a certain wall in a certain series about thrones and ice and fire, that isn't accidental. It is well documented that much of the Song of Ice and Fire series is inspired 
by the history of the British Islands. But we digress. What did happen to the Picts? Well, the Picts continued to rule Scotland long after the Roman Empire until they were suddenly conquered by another kingdom. The Kingdom of the Gaels. But the Orkney Islands remained fairly isolated from the events on the mainland and pretty much just kept doing their own thing. Until they were conquered in the 9th century by Vikings from Norway and became an earldom of the Kingdom of Norway. That is, until 1472, when control of the earldom of Orkney passed to the Kingdom of Scotland due to a dispute over a dowry payment. We kid you not. Because of Orkney's isolation, it contains some of the oldest undisturbed archaeological sites not just in the British Isles, but in all of Europe. And because it was mainly left untouched save for settlement by the Norse, it possesses a very rich and unique folkloric tradition blending the Celtic tradition of fairies with some Norse traditions. And among those traditions is the trow. Trow are ugly, mischievous fairy folk. They were generally short, stunted creatures, but in some stories they could pass for people. Deformed, reasoned crones, usually. And their ugliness was usually reflected in their names, like Trenchface and Bentfoot. Trows lived in earthen mounds known as Trow House, and they decorated their dwellings with gold and silver. Their pantries were only ever stocked with the finest foods and wines. Legends also say that Trows were nocturnal. In fact, they could not go out during the day at all. And Trows were invisible or could render themselves so. Some legends say that certain individuals had the power to see Trows. There's one story that tells of a man whose wife was able to see Trow dancing on the shore. He could not see the creatures himself until he held his wife's hand. So, the power to see fairies is apparently spread by casual contact. Now, if you're attentive, you might notice a similarity between the Orkney word trow and the Scandinavian word troll. And good for you. You're right. There are indeed similarities of a sort because Scandinavian traditions include two basic types of trolls. First, you had your giant, ugly, brutish trolls of the sort that lived under bridges and ate goats in popular northern Scandinavian fairy tales. But second, you had your tiny, mysterious trolls. These little creatures, more well-known in southern Scandinavia, hoarded treasures in their underground lairs and enjoyed great feasts, they were also excellent craftsmen. Unlike the northern brutes, the southern trolls were not regarded as wholly evil. They were merely tricky, though they did have a penchant for thievery. They liked to sneak into homes during feasts and steal food and beer. If your food ran short when you had company calling, it was most likely the work of a troll. But the Orkney trows and the Scandinavian trolls really have nothing to do with their counterparts in the world of Dungeons and Dragons. They were just stolen names. Drow were invented to be scheming villains, and Dungeons and Dragons trolls? Well, if you remember our episode on the Paladin, you know where they came from. Meanwhile, though, despite them being overplayed and tired nowadays, 
we still have to tip our hats to Gary Gygax and his original drow for being the most excellent long con in gaming history. And we hope you aren't too mad at us for making you wait for this payoff. We can't help but love a good long con. This has been GM Word of the Week. It's written and researched by the Angry GM and produced by me, Fiddleback. You can support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash gmwordoftheweek. You can find more at gmwordoftheweek.com and theangrygm.com. <laughs>